time for us to step into God's word. So if you have a Bible, I'd love to have you uh, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 57. We are working our way through all 66 books of Isaiah, begin that last September. We'll conclude that at the end of this month. Uh, of course, in order to do that, uh, 66 chapters in 30 sermons uh, involves some larger chunks. Today, three chapters that we will move our way through. And uh, the sermon notes in your bulletin would be very helpful to you. I'll refer to them often in giving some kind of structure here. But by way of introduction, then I want to pray, and then we'll jump into the text here. It's interesting to me, wherever you go in the world, whatever culture or, or language or ethnicity people uh, are in, there are always certain ways the human heart responds to, to well, religious things, Okay. And they're very similar, regardless of our background, because we're people, okay? And what I mean by that is, whether it's a world religion that involves uh, worship of, of, a, of an idol of some sort, or some other regiment or, or religious practice, or even stepping into biblical Christianity, sometimes there's a tendency in our own hearts to want to manipulate either the gods or God, and what I mean by that is kind of a trade we make where we say, uh, how good do I have to be? No, really. Or, or what do I have to do to get your favor? Uh, we might ask the question, what do I have to do to get into heaven at the end of this whole party? Or we might ask, uh, maybe not this bluntly, how much good stuff do I have to do to be on your good list so that you'll keep me from terrible things and do nice things for me and, and you know, protect my body from terrible illnesses? And what do I have to do? And there's a tendency, I think, across uh, all the, the different countries to kind of use religious things in attempt maybe to manipulate God. I want us to think about that today, uh, especially the motive question. That is, why do you do what you do when it comes to faith practices? Why do you do what you do? That'd be, that'd be something to think about throughout the morning, okay? I'd like to pray for us, and we will jump into the text here. So pray, join with me as we pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that is ours to open the word of God together. Where would we be apart from the scriptures? How would we know your thoughts and your ways? But here in the Bible, you've given us the instructions we need for life and how to know you and live before you rightly and how to be with you someday when this life is so quickly done. And I thank you for giving us the word of God. Would you help us today to hear you to hear exactly what it is we need to hear from the text. And then, Father, would you, would you help us to respond in faith um, so we trust you for your, your work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, of course, there's a section called Review. I'll invite you to look at that. That'll give you some idea of where we have been uh, over the last um, couple of weeks and before. There's a paragraph called Today's Text that uh, goes down the line that I was just addressing. How good is good enough? Um, why doesn't God bless me more? So it gives you a little bit of an idea of what the paragraph, uh, about what the text is about, these three chapters. Then if, I'd, I'd like you to just notice my three headings, okay, on the front and back of that sheet. So it goes 50, chapter 57, chapter 58, 59, and I think the headings I've given them reasonably uh, captured the material that's there. And you notice the similarities. God clearly sees both the righteous and the wicked. And then God always sees the motives of the heart. And then God graciously sees our helplessness and he sends a redeemer. That's the movement theologically we want to go to. And I think that just represents 
uh, the way the text flows for us. So that's the movement. I think it's the gospel, as you'll see with me in a few minutes. But 57 then, chapter 57, as we jump into this section, uh, God goes back and forth between the righteous and the wicked. And I'm going to define that in just a moment, okay? Because by using those terms, there's a tendency for us to hear something different than what God intended. Meaning righteous, we would think, would be, well, that means we're good boys and good girls. Okay, better than the average bear. We're a little nicer than the other guys. But, you know, on the good side, the righteous. And then there's the wicked, and they're just like, well, worse than me, for sure. Uh, they're, they're pretty bad. Well, okay, let's, let's think about those, those terms a little bit. But I want us to read. I'm going to start with chapter 57, 1 through 5, and then we'll pick up some other sections along the way as together we look at God's word. Isaiah 57, starting verse 1. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are carried away, well, no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So just a couple of generic verses, so to speak, about righteous people living and dying and uh, being away from calamity. There's that. But, but there's a turn in verse 3 where God now says, but you. So clearly he means I'm talking about the righteous, and now I'm talking about you. Translation, you're not in the first group. So, but you, and you should catch that. Oh, but you now. Oh, 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 and indeed. Draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rock, and on he goes. And you might say, well, I don't understand some of the behaviors described. Well, let me just give you shorthand for what I just read and some of the text that follows. He is describing uh, both religious practices that were common in the nation around, nations around God's people at the time, and some of the fertility practices. If you studied any of the fertility rites of ancient cultures, um, I won't walk down that road with you because it gets pretty nasty really, really quickly. But he's describing this and saying, hey, you know what, to his people, you're acting just like they are. Things that in another time and way you never would have done, now you are. That's what he's saying. There's another time and place when you'd look at what you're doing now and say, I would never, but you are. And so he's describing them in very graphic terms and he's spelling it out. Here are things you do. Now, move over to verse 11, if you would, as I read 11 to 13, you'll catch some of God's um, irony or may I say biting sarcasm. It really is that in one phrase. Whom do you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you did not fear me? God saying, I have been so patient with you. Isn't that interesting? I have been so patient with you. And still you, you, you run. Still you walk at the end of the leash. I gave you a certain amount of distance to go and you went to the very end and you stayed there and I waited for you to come back and you never did. I've been very, very patient, God says. Now, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds. It's a short list, by the way. They will not profit you. When you cry out, here's the irony or the sarcasm. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. You see that? In other words, God is saying in that phrase, as you live your life, you are seeking fulfillment and joy in a whole bunch of places. You are. And then, and then when bad things happen, what do you do? 
you run to Jesus and God says, I tell you what, if you're going to seek happiness and fulfillment and joy in all those other places, why don't you go there when all hell breaks loose in your life? Huh? What are you, what are you ringing my doorbell for? Well, God isn't say don't come back. He's saying, let's not play this little game. Could we, could we not play that game? I'm going to live what I want, and God is my little uh, rabbit's foot to get me out of trouble when it goes real poorly. Uh, we say, well, I guess the only thing I can do now is pray. And God's saying, yeah, what are you going to do tomorrow when I solve your problem or bail you out? Where are you going then? You're going to run right back to the end of your leash, and off you go again. What am I? Some kind of a genie in a bottle that you call upon when your life's a mess? And then when I meet you there, off you go again? Oh, really? I mean, God's just calling it out. Wow. When you, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Why don't you go there and get help? And, of course, the answer is because I, I know there's nobody home there. Well, you're right. Wow. God sees. God sees. Now, down in verses 14 through 16, again, God sees. He sees very clearly uh, behaviors. He sees hidden things that you think are hidden. He, he knows. So verse 14, it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. In other words, let's clear a path so that if they choose to come back to me, there's a, they can do it. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Note that phrase, the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What a, this is a beautiful expression. God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. Okay, I'll stop right there. I'm, I'm hoping that as I read that, certain other parts of the Bible sprang into your mind. Okay, for example, thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Where did we read this in Isaiah? Where did you visit Where did we visit together? One who is high and lifted up. Yes, you're right. If you said Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And of course, the angels cried holy, Um, which I think is some indicator perhaps of unity between the first part of Isaiah and the second discussions about if there's one writer of Isaiah, two writers, or even three people hypostulate. Well, I think there's also arguments to be made for the unity of Isaiah authorship, but I don't think that's the key issue here. High and lifted up draws to mind uh, Isaiah 6. Now, what what about the second half of that verse? where God says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Okay, quickly, what comes to mind? Who, who uses terms like this? The one who is a contrite and lowly spirit. Right away, perhaps your mind goes to Isaiah 51, David's prayer of confession. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Whether that's what the writer had in mind or not, I think can't be argued one way or the other, but... Nonetheless, the language draws us there. And where, does, where is God here? He is, he is dwelling in a high and holy place and also with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit. They're the lowly. They, they, their spirit needs to be revived. The contrite, that means people who've done wrong and they're coming back. So as we think about this contrast in this chapter between the righteous and the wicked, please be aware that when we talk about the righteous, it isn't just those who, who behave good all the time, like Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. 
You know what I mean by that? I know Mrs. Rogers, we never met, but Mr. Rogers, we sure did. I mean, what's wrong with him anyway? He's a nice guy. We could all be like Mr. Rogers and surely we'd go to heaven. Well, no, the Bible says we don't earn our way. Nobody earns their way to heaven. But, but God is described here in his holiness as one who is near to those who, who blow it and they know it and who come back. See, a contrite heart. God says, I dwell with them and I will revive. I'll revive the heart of the contrite like a little, little flame. And God is the one who comes alongside and blows on it to say, come on, come on. Which is, I think, is such good news that God sees those where he clears the obstructions out of the way in verse 14 and says, come back, please come back. So I'm saying these categories of wicked and righteous, I'm, I'm saying the wicked part isn't just a fixed group as those who, who could never repent. No, those among the category of wicked who repent and turn their hearts to the Lord are welcome to come or come back always. Wow. Again, verses 18 to 21, if you look at this last part of that chapter, this whole chapter is about this, the contrast back and forth between the righteous and the wicked and God seeing it very clearly. So 18, I've seen his ways, but I'll heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Isn't that good? So come, come back. I'll heal. Something broken? That's why I'm here. But come. Now, in contrast, verse 20, the wicked are like the tossing sea. That is, these are people who stay away from God, never come back. The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be still, cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Often people are seeking peace and fulfillment in places that cannot produce it. See, that, that's, I think, is what is in mind here. The wicked, uh, there's no peace there. Now, that's chapter 57, very quickly. God clearly sees the righteous and the wicked. There's a call to come to him. Uh, I put on your, your sermon notes here just a couple of things. Well, people are often fooled by righteous-sounding words and yet external things. God is never fooled. He is never fooled. You can fool other people by your behavior. You dress up nicely on Sunday or whatever, <clears throat> whatever, whatever day it is. Sorry. <clears throat> wow. But God is never fooled. He always sees beyond whatever is external. And then that second part, the wicked addressed in this text have adopted the sinful habits. It's the sinful habits of the the culture around them. It isn't simply, you know, that you have your hair cut or wear certain glasses or how you dress. That's like the culture around. Sometimes uh, people get kind of worried about those things. That isn't the point, is it? Oh dear, you're starting to look like, okay, hold on. That isn't it. Sinful habits. They've adopted the sinful habits of the culture around them and certainly uh, things that they would never have done at another time and place. Well, I move then to chapter 58 as you join me quickly in moving three chapters to cover. I I want to introduce this though before I read any of chapter 58. You're aware that in every language, in every culture, in every time, there are um, language conventions that in some cases change. What I mean by that is I was not raised, you know, those of us are this age, we weren't taught in grade school anything about air quotes. I don't know when that came, but somebody will know, you'll Google it and you'll find out. But everybody understands air quotes these days. So somebody will say, it's really nice to see you. 
And you'll say, oh, really? Because their words were now modified by the uh, little fake air quotes. Now, if I could add air quotes to this text, I would do it. Because there are certain places where they, do, they belong. And you'll see it. It's reflected in words. And I'll, I'll help you with this, okay? So I want you to watch for some air quotes that, that I think God provides uh, by the language he uses. It would help if you could add air quotes to, the, to understand the meaning. I also want you to watch for... In, in all of chapter 58, four uses of the term delight. Too early, too later, and they mean something, well, let's just say different. The first two, I think, need air quotes along with some others. So let's, let's get busy reading. You'll see what I mean here. I want to read one through five, and I'll make a couple of comments along the way. The voice changes, okay? I'm going to call it out as it does because it makes it possible to understand the text. So we read, God's word, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. So God speaking to Isaiah, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Israel their sins, yet they seek me daily and, air quotes, oh, they seek me, okay, you with me? They seek me daily, oh, they sure do, and they delight to know my ways as if, oh boy, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. That adds the air quotes to what we just read. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God, they ask of me righteous judgments. They uh delight to draw near God. Oh, they sure do. Now, there's biting sarcasm here. You know, now, this is is evidenced in what follows. Now, verse 3, the voice shifts to the people. The people are now talking to God. That's the way I understand the text. They're saying, why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Uh, Translation. Can I translate it just a little different like this? We've been doing cool religious things that all good religious people should do. We've been going to church and read your Bible, pray every day. We've been doing this. So how come you're not giving us more stuff? How come my finances are still what they are? Or I'm sick a lot? Or how come I got three tickets in the... I mean, come on, God. Aren't you supposed to, you know... Isn't this like a nice trade? I mean, doing cool religious things. How come I fast? I mean, don't you, you do like that, right? How about if I just do a little bit of that and you'd, and you'd bless me? Reasonable? Do you assume that if you do cool religious things, God is supposed to protect stuff? Like your car? Why did my car break down? I went to church. Why did I get that call from the doctor? I mean, I, I, come on. Following Jesus. Do we make the same manipulative trade that false religions do that try to manipulate the gods by our good behavior? Are we doing it? Okay, God answers. God answers. Second half of verse three. Behold, in the day of your fast, in other words, when you're doing all these cool religious things, you're seeking your own pleasure. You're pretending to do this for me, but you're not. You see this? You oppress, you behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. In other words, you're not living righteously, only at church. You leave church or whatever religious activity it is, and you're right back to, to old behavior, should have been old. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with a wicked fist, fasting like yours, air quotes, fasting like that. Wow, this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day? For a person to humble himself, is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? 
In other words, what, what are you doing with all the religious stuff you do or don't? What are you doing that for? Are you, are you thinking you're going to manipulate me? Because God says, of course, I see the motives of your heart. Are you doing those things to make yourself feel better? I mean, after all, you feel better when you, you know, do good religious stuff. Read my Bible five days in a row. Mm, snap. Look at that. I feel good about that. That's why, I mean, 38 days in a row. Boy, really rolling. And I feel great. Why, why am I doing what? Is, is it to pat yourself on the back so that you'll feel extra spiritual? Is that it? Is it really about me feeling better? Or is there something else? God's calling it out. You're doing this religious stuff, okay, on a limited basis, but I, I see your heart the whole time, and you're really doing it for you. You're really not doing that thing or those things for me. You aren't. So now he's going he's gonna to change it up here a little bit. Wow. Verses 6 and 7. He says, is this not the fast that I choose? And he's going to give a list here. It's a different kind of list. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to, cover, to hide yourself from your own flesh? So he gives a whole list here of things. And he's saying, you know what I'm looking for from you is, is this, not that. Now, I want to, I want to, let's talk about this. I, I don't want to have us look at this as God replacing one list of, of behaviors to earn his favor with another list. That's not what's going on. God isn't saying, well, no, that's not how you earn my favor. This is how you earn my favor. No, no, because never in the Bible are we told that we can earn favor with God as in redemptive favor with God, as in get into heaven free cards. Nobody earns this, okay? So, so what's, what's going on here? Well, if you think about verses, uh, verse 3 and the, the dealing of God with this business of fasting and religious activities, what does it cost you to do that? Well, maybe a little discomfort, uh, but actually there's some, there's some benefit. I mean, think about this. Suppose you were going to fast from eating out at high-priced restaurants like McDonald's for the next week. You know the price of a Happy Meal right now? <clears throat> yeah, no kidding. What just happened here? Are these are amazing fries. Um, they better be. <laughs> You're going to charge me? Wow. So, so if, I, if I fast from eating at high-priced restaurants, actually, there's a benefit to me. Uh, there is, because I have a little more money in my pocket, and um, well, my cholesterol counts are better. So you, can, you could argue that there's some self-benefit here as well, though maybe a little hunger perhaps, but let me tell you something. You're not going to get close to verses 6 and 7 without a different kind of thing. This is going to cost you deeply. If you're going to live in such a way that your, your life produces justice in the circles in which you, you travel, it's going to cost you something more than just one day a week. Um, the, the activities that are described here are action, actions of justice and seeking righteousness. They should be, please understand this, they should be the natural outflow of the heart of a person who is right with God. That's what this should look like. If you're a person who knows Christ is your savior, he's describing what should flow out of your life. This kind of a heart that's kind to people in practical ways, not just feeling like I feel kind. I'm not really, but I feel that way. We don't get any bonus points for that. He's describing here what should flow out of a heart that's right with God. 
Now, you're aware these days there's a lot of things being said about justice issues, global justice, and so on. Um, some of those things are, are really, really good. Some of them, I th- I'm, I'm concerned, lose the gospel along the way. In other words, if you're giving a sandwich and, and Jesus, that's wonderful. But if you're just giving a sandwich, you, you miss the Jesus part. So I, I really think in our doing of justice, as good as that might happen to be, I really think somehow or another, it's got to work into the telling of the gospel. I did some research on this a few years ago, and I, something I found very disheartening is that organizations that's, that, that always start out ostensibly to be equal, Jesus and a sandwich, and the list they gave was, was long and without exception, that, that within a generation, it was the sandwich and not Jesus. Just think about that with the YMCA and a whole lot of other organizations like that. The Young Men's, what is it? Christian Association, but would you know it? Not picking on the YMCA. If you work out there, go do it. Get in good health. I'm simply saying the Christian part has kind of been lost. See, and I'm just saying that through history, it's demonstrable that if an organization says social, yes, indeed, but we're going to do it with Jesus, very, very few, I'd put it that way, have succeeded at this beyond a generation. Uh, But within a generation, when the leadership changes, Jesus gets lost. So that's a concern always. It's not to say these behaviors are bad. My point in the bigger picture of the, of the sermon today, though, is God is saying, don't just show up one day a week and give me lip service. Don't do that. Don't do that. I, I, I long to see righteousness flow from your heart. And if it does, if it's really a changed life and a changed heart, it's going to look a certain way. It's going to look like this and not that. See? You go back to 57, you get to not that. Behaviors of, 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 of sin, that's not what it looks like. So a regenerated heart, a regenerated heart produces a certain kind of fruit. Do you hear me on this? So it's not that you manufacture it to earn God's favor, but a regenerated heart produces a certain type of thing. As surely as if you plant an apple tree, it will produce. That's not a trick question. Apples, it just will. A regenerated heart will produce a certain type of life. And if it doesn't, then you start saying, what's wrong here? What's, what's going on? Okay, now, coming back to the text, 58, I want to pick it up at verse 8 again. I'm not going to read all this, but there's a shift now. God begins to describe what it looks like when a person uh, has a changed heart and therefore a changed life. He says in verse 8, then, that your light shall shine forth like the dawn, your healing spring up speedily. And he's listing all kinds of good things. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. He'll protect your, like I've got your back. You'll cry out and the Lord will hear and answer. All these good things. Now, I, I want to come down to verses 13 and 14. A couple comments I think are, are needed here. He's in that same category. And he says, if you turn back your feet from Shabbat, from Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call Sabbath a a delight, there's the third use of that term, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you, that's the fourth use, I'll make you ride on the heights of the earth. I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Okay, now it is not uncommon today, of course, as people read their Bibles to come up with questions about Sabbath. I'm asked that periodically um, Old Testament Sabbath, Saturday, and sometimes people say, well, it kind of morphed and now it's Sunday. Well, that's really an incomplete answer, please. I understand the Lord's Day, but the Lord's Day is not just a Christianized Sabbath. Okay, there's something different going on. I'm going to give you like three minutes of a crash course here. It's a longer conversation. But you know how it is in the Old Testament? We often talk about this in our preaching. Elements in the Old Testament point the way to the new. 
So sacrifices point the way to the New Testament. We don't just not sacrifice animals today because that was old. No, it's because Jesus came and he became the final sacrifice for our sins. The blood of animals in the past covered sin, emphasized its ugliness. And then Christ came and he died on the cross once and for all, paying for sin for all time. So those elements in the Old Testament, the reason we don't do them isn't just because they, you know, it's first, you know, old. No, no, it's because Christ fulfilled them. Okay, the feasts, look ahead to Jesus. So many elements in the Old Testament, look ahead to their fulfillment in Jesus. I believe Sabbath is the same way. Now, I want to be careful. There's a Sabbath principle I think God has built into creation, meaning it's not a bad thing to take a break. I think it's a good thing to take a rest. So I think that continues in cycles of life. That's good. But to talk about a certain day, I believe Sabbath as a day ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. Here's what I mean. When you rested on Sabbath, you ceased from your labors and you rested. Hebrews 4 describes this as what you do when you come to Jesus. You cease from your labors, works, and you rest. You rest in Christ. Rest, trust, faith, all have a very similar idea to them in the Bible. So when I come to Christ, when I trust Christ as my Savior, I'm rest from, I'm saying I can't earn it. I can't earn it, and I know it. So I rest from any efforts to try to earn God's favor. I rest from that, and I, I turn from that, and I rest my weary soul in Christ and Christ alone. What day is Sabbath for me? Now, if you're a Christian, I believe every single day, every single day, you, you're resting in Christ. You're enjoying God's Sabbath. That's the way I understand the text. I understand different people would deal with it differently. That, I think, makes most sense to me in the whole council of Scripture, Hebrews 4 is a key text for your study there. But do I celebrate Sabbath? Yes, every day when I get up and say, thank you, Jesus, I belong to you today. I rest in you. Sabbath, okay? Something to think about. But in this context, in the text, though, you have people who are, or where God is saying to them, when you take a break on Sabbath, uh, would, you, would you take delight in me? Sabbath was a gift in the Old Testament to people who worked all the time. It was intended to be a gift, not a, not a burden, so when God gave Sabbath, he was saying, please, you know, enjoy this. Sit down. You're working all the time on your farm or whatever it is. Rest before me and turn your thoughts to things eternal. It was intended to be a gift. God's quick, people quickly turned it into a burden by giving all these rules that, that God never intended to say, and it's going to be awful. And by the way, wipe that smile off your face. If you're not miserable, it's not Sabbath. No, really, I'm not making that up. And I, wow. And God says, no, take pleasure in me. I wanted you to take a break from your work so that you'd find pleasure in me. Are you? Are you? Or are you just taking a day off? See, that's how quickly we can take something good and take it sideways. Oh, it's just another day off. Oh, is it? And God says, no, no, I gave you that that day so we could be friends and we could be close. It was a gift. What have you done with it? You've turned it into some awful thing. I intended for us to be close. So that, that's really what's going on in chapter 58. Now, now heading into 59 then, and again, it'll, it'll go quickly, I promise. Chapter 59 is like a summation, and it moves from bad news to good news. Bad news is first. So I'm going to read uh, 59, and uh, I'm going I'm to go all the way down through, well, through verse 8. And I want you to watch, please, please, here's a key as I read it. We're going to notice in this chapter a shift of voice, pronouns. 
We're going to go from second person plural to third person plural to first person plural. And all of you grammarians will notice, and hopefully you'll notice why that matters. Others of you, let it go, okay? I'll call it out when we see it. So God's word, chapter 59, behold... The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but here's the second person plural. Your iniquities, you, y'all, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. And they're plurals. They're plurals. It's y'all. It's not just saying you personally. It's to, to all of you who are listening. This is true of you. you your, your sins have separated you from your God so that he, he has hidden his face from you even as you hide your face from his. Now, we, we shift then um, to in verse 4. To, to they's, third person plural. No one enters suit or, or law, lawsuits justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adders, eggs. Wow, they weave spider's webs. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one who is crushed, a viper is hatched. Isn't that about the most miserable verse you could come across? I'm, it is. No one, I just, I would, I would dare say, no one has ever said, my memory verse for the week is Isaiah 59, 5. <laughs> yes, let's see, crush, crush, dies. Okay, wow, praise the Lord. No, nobody has verse 5 as a memory verse. It's not in any of our venture clubs or a one of, I'm sorry, that's the way my brain works. I just have to pause and enjoy it. Wow, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Now listen carefully. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their, high, in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their paths. They've made their ways crooked. No one treads on them. No one who treads on them knows peace. Okay, okay. Did you hear it? I put it on your sermon notes. This should immediately call to mind, if you're a New Testament scholar, Romans chapter 3, because Romans 3 used verses 7 and 8. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in writing Romans 3, quotes Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. And I'll tell you, it's the same purpose. This text serves the same purpose as Romans 3. You know that? Which is an indictment. That's what this is. It's an indictment of sin. Just like the book of Romans, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are a steady stream of guilty, guilty, guilty. Coming to a conclusion in Romans 3, starting at verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. They have together turned aside and all the way down to verse 18. Every mouth should be closed. All the world accountable to God. He's quoting Verse, verses 7 and 8 as part of his royal indictment in Romans 3. And so here, this is a concluding, really concluding 57 and 58. It's saying, ladies and gentlemen, you are guilty, they are guilty, and now what happens in verse 9? We are guilty. Suddenly it becomes a confession. That's what happens. We shift from others to me and verse, verse 9 through 13 are first-person plural. It's, it's us. It's we. 
Our trend, verse, verse 12 is a good summary of this. Our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us. Our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. So th- that last paragraph is a, is a confession. It's the listener saying, God, you are right. You're right. All our righteous efforts, all our attempts to fast and make you like us and ha- manipulate God to do good for us, my goodness sakes, <sighs> Every bit of it, every bit of it is stained, stained with sin. The doctrine of total depravity says that every part of us is affected and infected by sin. Every part of us, mind, will, emotions, total depravity says, says every part of me. In fact, my, my motives, my motives should be suspect. Your motives, you should question your motives. You should. I don't just mean like disbelieve and like always angry at your motives. I don't mean that. But ask, what are your motives here? Search. Search your heart as I search mine. What are my motives here? Even in religious activities. There's a quotation, a paragraph that I I have not memorized it well from from a writer from years gone by, but I remember one phrase of it well where he's dealing with this topic and he says, even our tears of repentance need washing in the blood of the lamb. What does he mean by that? Even when I repent, why am I repenting? Huh? Because I'm miserable. I. If I wasn't miserable, I probably wouldn't repent. But I'm repenting today because I'm miserable. We can't have that. Even in my repentance, my tears of repentance, need washing in the blood of the Lamb because half of my repentance is for me. Oh, Lord. I can't even repent right. That's what the writer was saying. My songs, my coming to any religious event. Oh, man. Now, if we were to close it right there and say, okay, have a good week. You think, well, are are we missing something? Indeed, you're missing the gospel. And I love how this text, as text after text in the Bible, it moves from bad news, devastating news, to good news. It moves to Jesus. It really does. So, so watch, and we'll go there quickly. Verses 14 and first half of 15 are kind of a summary statement of where it stands. And then in the middle of verse 15, there's a shift that takes place. The Lord sees it. He, it's, he's displeased. He sees the need. No one, no one is standing up for him. There are none righteous. And so the Lord then is pictured here, verse 17, look at this, as one who, who arms himself as a warrior to do battle on behalf of his people. You see this? It's very reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 6. A a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head, garments of vengeance. The Lord goes to battle for his people. And and, and ultimately, this comes down to verse verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. So he moves from, and it's a mess, and you're a mess, amen, thus says the Lord, to, and, and the Lord sees that there's no one able to stand. He sees this. And so rather than just yelling at us, he sends a redeemer. He's going to send a redeemer. The Lord will send the redeemer who will come. That's the, that's the Old Testament. A redeemer will come. You come to the New Testament, a redeemer comes. His name is Jesus. And we look back from our place and say, a redeemer has come and indeed will come again. So here, Isaiah 59, the good news, a redeemer will come to Zion. You say, well, man, we sure had to work through a lot of chapters to get to that one cool verse. Let me tell you something. Uh, It's so good that we do this 
Because today, listen, the gospel is being co-opted on our airwaves and in common books. Various preachers, but here's what I mean. Often the gospel today is portrayed, and I'm not minimizing it. I don't think I'm making this up. You know, you're pretty amazing people, and God agrees. See? God, God affirms you in your greatness. And my goodness sakes, it's so great that God affirms you. He's agreeing with you. You're pretty great. Is that the gospel? Yeah, I don't think so. That isn't the gospel that God thinks you're great. No, no, no. God who made you knows you and loves you and sees you and he sees me, every one of us as needy people, broken in our sin, uh, going our own way like a sheep, Isaiah 53. He sees and he knows. And rather than just yell at us and say, do better, the gospel is not do better. The gospel is, oh, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I can't earn on my best day one inch of heaven. I can't. So every one of us utterly broken before him, utterly in need of a savior. And Jesus has come to meet us right there. And he is the one who's paid for our sin and our shame. And as we trust him to be our sin bearer, wraps us in his robes of righteousness. This is the work of God. All the way through the Bible, Bad news, Adam and Eve sin. Good news, Genesis 3.15, a savior will come. All the way through bad news and then good news. And Romans, bad news, bad news, but a savior has come. Until you hear the bad news and embrace it, you're not ready to hear the good news. You don't see it as good that a savior has come until you embrace the fact that you need a savior. And that's what the gospel does over and over again. This chapter does it, this section. He does it so well. The gospel shines forth. His name is Jesus. I hope you know him today. I, I do. I hope that right here, as you're sitting here, that, that you've, come, you've come with a heart that says, God, I want to I worship you. I want to be with you. I know my need, and I'm so grateful for a Savior. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe that's something you're going to do today, is agree with God about sin and thank him for a Savior and trust Christ. Him alone is your Savior from sin. That's what the gospel commands you to do. And we need the work of God to enable us to do it. I want to pray. We're going to conclude with communion, a little cracker and a little, piece of, a little bit of juice, pointing our hearts to Christ. So I'd like to pray that God would help us in these moments. And uh, then I'll say a word about how to proceed. Father, thank you for your word, how we need a savior. We, we do. We are just like those in the text who sometimes do good things for, oh boy, to try to, to manipulate you, to cover up unrighteousness. Oh, Lord, thank you that you see it all. And even as you see it all, you don't run away from us and say, what a mess. You run toward us in the person of your son, Jesus, who came and dwelt among us. And we do, in fact, see his glory. Thank you for giving us a savior, just the one we need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The practice of communion goes back all the way to the life of Christ. And it's, just, it's a remembering, it's a retelling of the work of Jesus on the cross. And uh, down through the years, people have celebrated communion in different ways, different formats, different traditions, different places, some in war-torn countries in little groups, some in places like this in freedom, but some kind of a little cracker and some kind of grape juice of some sort that says, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, we remember him today. So as we, as we remember Christ in communion this morning, if you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you to, to, to share with us in doing that. 
And in these days, we invite you to come uh, up to the, the one of these stations, pick up both little cups. The bottom cup has a little cracker in it, so you, you know, take both that way. Um, and then make your way back to your seat. We ask those in this section, these two, if you'd come down the middle aisle to this place, and it's on the sides, if you'd come up the outside. And then these two aisles are the return chutes. And if one station runs out, you'll probably find something at another one, okay? But if you know Christ is your Savior, uh, then, then we invite you to come. If you'd like to just stay in your seat, you can certainly do that. And once you come back to your seat, I'll say just a word or two, and together we'll remember Jesus as an act of worship, okay? Come, if you would. Indeed, his wounds have paid my ransom. Isaiah 59, we read, a Savior will come, a Redeemer will come. As you open into the pages of the New Testament, in Matthew 1, you find a Savior coming after all those years of waiting. The angel speaking to Joseph about Mary says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Isaiah, by the way, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Savior has come. The gospel story goes on. The Savior dies, lives a perfect life, and they crucify him anyway. In that moment, bearing our sin in his body on the cross. He rises from the dead ascends to heaven, coming again, calls us to believe him, to trust him. This little cracker points us to his body broken for us on the cross, beaten, as we saw in Isaiah 53, beyond any man. Let's remember him. Not only was Jesus' body bruised and beaten and broken for us, his blood was shed to death book of Hebrews reminds us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Our sin deserves a death penalty. And Jesus paid it. He paid it all. Let's remember him together. I would love for us to pray together. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I thank you for your graciousness in sending a Savior, Jesus. Thank you for this. Exactly the Savior we need. Thank you for the, your promised presence in the week ahead. Uh, we don't know what's coming our way even this week, but we leave this place in hope, in confidence in you, knowing that whatever comes our way has gone before you first. And so we walk into the future with joy and in hope, trusting in you. Help us to live that way this week. In Jesus' name, amen.